милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The term flashbulb memory refers to moments when personal and public memories connect and are shared. People remember where they were when Michael Jackson died, when the Twin Towers came down, JFK was assassinated, or when Khrushchev ordered the Soviet ships carrying missiles bound for Cuba to turn around. The fall of the Berlin Wall is one such flashbulb memory for many who lived through the late 1980s. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the end of communist states in Eastern Europe. To commemorate this defining historical event, Matthias Neumann, the new president of the British Association for Slavonic and East European Studies and past SRB podcast guest, gave me the recording of a roundtable he moderated, witnessing the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, recorded at the Bassis Conference in April. The panel's participants include Timothy Garton Ash, who is an author of 10 books that have charted the transformation of Europe over the last half century. He is a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford, the Isaiah Berlin Professional Fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Garden Ash's essays appear regularly in the New York Review of Books, and he writes a column on international affairs for The Guardian. His book, The Magic Lantern, which documented the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, has been translated into 15 languages. A new edition of The Magic Lantern, with a new postscript, will be published this fall. The second participant is Bridget Kendall. Bridget Kendall joined the BBC in 1983 and has since become one of the corporation's most respected international correspondents, with 30 years of experience of reporting from the field. She served as BBC Moscow correspondent and BBC Washington correspondent. Since 1998, she has held the senior role of BBC diplomatic correspondent, reporting on and analyzing major global crises and conflicts and their impact on Britain and the world. The final participant is Jens Reich, who was born in Gottenton in 1939. A molecular biologist and essayist, he was one of the key figures in the civil rights movement in the GDR in the 1980s. In September 1989, he was one of the signatories to the paper calling for the establishment of Neues Forum, a grassroots movement whose activities led to the overthrow of the communist regime in East Germany and eventually to the fall of the Berlin Wall. In 1990, as a leading candidate of Neues Forum, he was elected to the People's Chamber of the GDR. After reunification, he returned to his academic career as a molecular geneticist 
at the Max Dolbruck Center in Berlin, remaining politically active. Here's the roundtable, witnessing the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. I hope you enjoy it. So good afternoon, uh, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, final keynote at Bessie's 2019. Uh, but welcome to this keynote on witnessing the collapse of communism in Central and Eastern Europe and the disintegration of the Soviet Union. My name is uh, Matthias Neumann, and I'm the incoming Bessie's president. Um, and I'm also a lecturer in uh, modern Russian history at the University of East Anglia. And it gives me particular pleasure to be able to chair the roundtable today because 1989 uh, is the pivotal year in my own biography. I was born in East Germany in 1977 in the city of Cottbus, which is 100 kilometers south of Berlin, almost on the Polish border. And uh, I became really a child of the 1989 revolution. It became the formative experience of, of my life. Um, my memory of 1989 really starts with uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, I was shocked by the images, as so many others, that I saw on Western news channels, which of course we were all, all watching, Western TV channels. And the reaction of my parents to the violent repression in Beijing fundamentally challenged my youthful uh, belief uh, in the legitimacy and righteousness of the uh, state that I was living in. And at school, I made the mistake to openly uh, defending the Chinese students. And I expressed my, and by, of course, by extension, my parents' views, um, um, you know, my disagreement with the Chinese state's response to the student protest in one of these regular classroom um, discussions on contemporary or current political events. And the teacher in charge of the lesson, of course, having to, um, having to maintain and reassert the official party line and the, the, the East German state fully supported the Chinese state's action, vocally reprimanded me in such a strong way, so strongly in front of the class, uh, quite humiliating actually, that I ended up spending the rest of the lesson crying behind the curtain by the classroom window. I was 11 years old. Uh, so, but this is really my first proper memory, political memory of 1989. Uh, a few months later, in summer 1989, our family went to Hungary on a holiday, as we did quite a few times in the late 1980s. And each morning, when we woke up on the campsite that we were camping for two weeks, um, there were a few empty tents there of people who had decided to escape the Eastern Bloc during the night via the Austro-Hungarian border. And of course, Austria had uh, torn down the Iron Curtain earlier that year. This was never a question for my family, uh, although quite a few people you know, that we knew thought we would not come back from that holiday. Uh, but by autumn 1989, um, uh, I participated uh, with my parents in the Monday demonstrations. Uh, and with my parents, I was witnessing really the uh, how the demands for radical reform, you know, we are the people was the, the slogan, uh, were fairly quickly changing to demands for revolution. We are one people, you know, and the calls for German reunification and the complete um, disappearance of the, 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 the communist regime. So looking back at this time, I can really see myself, I can see in myself this transition that happened on the streets uh, of East Germany. In spring 1989, I was still a fairly stalwart and uh, happy Tailman pioneer. 
In the autumn, I was on the streets shouting with my parents, we are the people. By, by, by early 1990, I was handing out leaflets and putting up posters uh, for the Allianz for Deutschland, so the Alliance for Germany, a center-right coalition of parties that were advocating reunification. So I was really becoming politicized in that time. And, um, and this alliance uh, of parties won the first free election to the People's Chamber, to the Volkskammer. And by October, I was celebrating the unification of Germany. So 1989, the reunification and the European integration, of course, that followed it, um, and the cherished freedom of movement that came with it and is now, unfortunately, under attack again in this country, um, whether we will keep hold of my German passport, um, opened up opportunities um, to people of my generation that we never dared to dream of. So it's really no overstatement to, to, to say that without the events of 1989, I would not be standing in front of you today. For me, 1989 are childhood memories, but for our three uh, eminent speakers today, they witnessed it in a very different way. Um, so let me introduce them. Uh, we have Timothy Garten Ash, who many of you know, of course, a professor of East European, oh, sorry, of European Studies in the University of Oxford, the Isaiah Berlin Professorial Fellow at the St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is the author of many award-winning books uh, of political writing, or uh, as it's called, History of the Present, which have charted the transformation of Europe over the last half century. Uh, his most recent book is Free Speech, The Ten Principles for a Connected World, which was published in 2016. But of particular relevance, of course, to our discussion today is his captivating uh, account of witnessing the 1989 revolutions. Um, and it's, uh, the book was called we, we the People, the Revolutions of 89 Witness, uh, Witnessed in Warsaw, Budapest, Berlin, and Prague. was published in 1919. Uh, the American edition has a title, The Magic Lantern. And it was translated in 15 languages. And uh, Professor uh, Garten Ash also writes uh, regularly for the New York Review of Books and, of course, has a column on international affairs in The Guardian, currently very much dealing with Brexit. Um, our second speaker is Bridget Kendall, um, which many of you will know from... Uh, watching the BBC. She joined the BBC in 1983 as a trainee for the BBC World Services and over her career became, uh, become, uh, has become one of the corporation's most respected international correspondents with 30 years ex of experience of reporting from the field. She served as the correspondent, uh, BBC correspondent in Moscow and also in Washington. And during her time in Moscow, um, she witnessed the collapse of the Soviet Union at first hand as well as uh, many of the conflicts that followed it in Chechnya and Georgia, to just name a few. She has conducted uh, interviews with quite a range of high-profile international leaders, uh, including Margaret Thatcher, George H. Bush, Hillary Clinton, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, and also twice conducted long interviews with Vladimir Putin uh, that were broadcast live from the Kremlin in 2001 and 2006. And Bridget is an honorary fellow at two Oxford colleges, St. Anthony's College and Lady Margaret Hall. And in July 2016, she became the first female master of Peter House here in Cambridge. And our final uh, speaker is Professor Jens Reich, uh, an acclaimed uh, biologist and essayist. Uh, Professor Reich was one of the key figures in the civil rights movement in the GDR in the 1980s. And in September 1989, and he will tell us more about it, surely, 
Uh, he was one of the signatories of the paper calling for the establishment of the Neues Forum, a grassroots movement whose activities contributed to the overthrow of the communist uh, state in East Germany. Um, in 1990, he was, uh, um, as a leading candidate of the Neues Forum, he was elected into the People's Chamber in, of the GDR. And after unification, he, uh, reunification, he returned to his academic career, but he remained very much politically uh, active. In 1994, he was the independent candidate for the office of the President of the Federal Republic of Germany. And in 2001, the cabinet of the German federal government appointed him as a member of the newly founded National Ethics Council, and he was reappointed several times. Uh, Professor Reich is the author of over 70 scientific publications, moreover also a couple of books, and I want to name two. Uh, in 1991, he published a book, Rückkehr nach Europa, Return to Europe, and in 1992, uh, a book uh, entitled Abschied von Lebenslügen, Farewell to Life Lies. So please join me in welcoming our eminent speakers. Right, so um, I told you already about my uh, background in 1989, uh, but I thought I would start uh, with, um, with Jens. Uh, um, you were born in 1939, um, um, a Kriegskind, a ch child of the war, and then lived you know, most of your life for the, for the whole duration of uh, this, the East Germany existed, uh, the German Democratic Republic existed. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, growing up in the GDR studying in the GDR, experiencing, of course, the wall being built, um, and your path that brought you uh, to the civil rights movement and made you sign um, the, this um, call for the creation of a noise forum. And, of course, just a few days before the wall came down, you were giving a speech as one of these big demonstrations in Berlin in front of half a million to a million people. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I stem from 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 a middle class family, mixed uh, ethnically. I could say my father was German and a doctor. <clears throat> my mother came from originated in Austria and uh, lived her, live, her early life as Czechoslovak uh, citizen and was, became then German, much to her annoyance uh, uh, by, after, after Hitler's and, uh, and the other uh, prime minister's uh, negotiation in Munich, um, when the ethnic German fringe of Bohemia was uh, turned over to Germany and with it all the inhabitants there. <clears throat> My mother was not that enthusiastic at the time as, uh, her, uh, as her contemporaries around. Um, so we were a family which was in resistance culturally already from the beginning. My father made a career <clears throat> as a doctor in, in the middle town, Halberstadt, at the hospital and did this until the end uh, of the GDR, or nearly to the end. I studied medicine and biology 
in Humboldt University in Berlin and became, after a certain period of being a doctor, became scientist, biological, medical scientist, working on early in the early, uh, in the early time of, uh, uh, of computers uh, applied to uh, model systems. Well, and in Berlin I lived in a community where we found friends, where the families uh, were together in the weekends, families with their children. We founded a Freitags, a Friday society, discussion society uh, in the late 60s. And this became more political, more and more political over the time. And myself being very much politicized at, in the beginning internally and later on outspokenly uh, by, uh, by our our scientific cooperation in the East. I had many stays, long-term stays, even together with my family in Russia and the Soviet Union. I worked uh, together in Poland and Czechoslovakia, and I did all this as a scientist, but could establish uh, connections with people in, in these three countries uh, with people from the Helsinki Committee, with people from Solidarność in particular, and Carta 77 in Czech, Czechoslovakia. And this uh, politicized me very much because I saw what happened and I saw the advices of those who were m very much more advanced in the struggle for reforms and uh, for a better society. And so our Friday circle was uh, became instrumental in, in forming the new forum. All our friends joined it and became active politically in, in autumn 89. Well, and this is my political career. In 90, I, I had to stand, uh, had to stand for, for election uh, for a new forum, for um, Alliance 90, as it was called, because of, uh, uh, of an agreement with other uh, grassroots uh, parties or movements. Well, and this is, this is my political career, more or less. It has been described aptly, I think. And uh, later on, I returned uh, to, to molecular biology and am now politically well, retired, writing, <laughs> writing from time to time. Uh, that's, my, that's my life that has gone. I can, I can present a lot of stories and uh, a lot of remembrance, uh, but I think we should discuss it with the others. Well, um, but so in summer, summer 89, um, when these things were starting to, to, to evolve and, and, and develop, um, was, did, did you have any sense um, what was coming? <clears throat> there was hope already when we started this, this uh, calling for a grassroots movement that uh, was addressing itself more to the general population. Than rather rather than to the to the uh, 
to the dissident movement. We hoped uh, to have some impact, of course, always when we did such things within the evangelical church or outside of it. Um, but I can say only that the, that the convention, that the meeting when we uh, drafted uh, this paper, uh, when we said goodbye to all these people who had come together from, from East Germany, from the country, we said uh, we will next time, next time we will meet perhaps after the party, uh, party conference, uh, SED party conference, nearly, uh, nearly 10 months later. So we did not expect anything that would have <laughs> resulted. Of course, there was always Poland in, in our back, in, in our brains. Uh, and, and Poland was just in the, in the process of, of negotiating uh, some sort of, well, of, of going out of the, of the communist regime. And this was, of course, always something that pointed to, well, uh, we should also join this. Uh, but the hope that it that, that several weeks later, all thing, the, the whole country, the whole state would collapse. That was out of our expectation outside. Okay. And of course, uh, I mean, you, you highlight the inter, how this was, of course, to some way interconnected and, you know, the events uh, in, 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 in Poland, um, uh, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and so on. Um, but of course, in the start of October, when Gorbachev came to East Germany to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the East German state, the East German leaders were very much um, reasserting their belief that this regime would, uh, that uh, East, uh, communism in East Germany would, uh, would continue to exist for a very long time. Uh, Bridget, you accompanied Gorbachev uh, on this trip to East Berlin. Um, and you started, I think, your job in Moscow in, 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 in summer 1985. Um, 89. 89, oh God, why was I saying 85? Um, this was, so Tiananmen had already happened, uh, the Polish elections in June. Uh, what was the atmosphere like and what, you know, your reflections on Gorbachev coming uh, to East Germany, talking to Honecker, um, how did he arrive, how did he leave? Well, I just wanted to backtrack a bit to when I arrived in Moscow in July 89, and as BBC correspondent, I've been tra travelling back and forth a lot, doing short reports ever since the beginning of Perestroika, but I was moving there all the time, and I, I remember very clearly that um, when I, I got the job and, and arrived in Moscow, I did wonder if this moment of euphoria was about to give way to a retreat, and that the high point of Perestroika had maybe peaked because um, mm. there was a lot of adulation for Gorbachev abroad. Europe, Tiananmen Square, let's not forget, his visit to China was the trigger for that. Um, he had been to West Germany in June, the chance of Gorby everywhere. But, but at home, there was a much sourer mood had set in. And um, the economy was stalling. Um, there was discontent, uh, impatience with perestroika, people wanting more reforms quicker. Um, people would say things like, the communists have made us beggars. And I remember one of the first things that happened when I arrived in Moscow was I got a call from a miner in uh, Vorkuta, which is in the Arctic Circle, saying he was coming to Moscow and wanted to see me. 
and he was coming to say we're about to have a mass strike, and there was um, an extraordinary mass strike of miners in the Donbass, the Kuzbass, and Vorkuta in July. Uh, you know, the very proletariat in whose name the Communist Party was ruling. So um, that, that was quite momentous, but there was a feeling that people were getting impatient and angry about the economy, that hardline resistance was mounting, the Politburo was split. We don't remember it now, but there were international tensions. Um, I felt it very acutely because my predecessor as BBC correspondent had just been kicked out in a tit-for-tat expulsion that happened in May. There were 11 Soviets who were kicked out of Britain and they kicked out diplomats and journalists. So um, it felt as though relations with Britain were bad and relations with Washington were not good either. George H. Bush came in, was inaugurated in January and ordered Brent Scrowcroft to uh, review policy with the Soviet Union. They thought Reagan had maybe gone soft on Gorbachev. And they were very itchy in Moscow and worried about relations with the, with the Americans. So I had this feeling, you, know, you had this feeling that I might be trying to, at the same time, there's all this expectation in, in uh, elsewhere that things were going well, that I was actually going to have to try and steer people to another narrative, which was, it was no longer going quite so well. But at the same time, an awful lot of things were happening. So the solidarity elections, Hungary seemed to be going its own way. Um, and inside the Soviet Union, there was also political turmoil with a new Congress of People's Deputies, which was this extraordinary um, parliament, nationwide parliament, broadcast nationwide on television for two weeks at the end of June, uh, end of May, beginning of June, which suddenly created a platform for Russia's Democrats, human rights campaigners like Sakharov, and people speaking up for the nascent uh, movements for independence or autonomy in the republics. And that was when we suddenly realized that actually they weren't quiet in the republics. It, well, this wasn't just an Eastern European story. That, but, but, but I do remember when I arrived that it seemed as though Eastern Europe had its own trajectory. You know, there was the Soviet Union and then there was Eastern Europe. And the exciting things happening in, in Poland and um, uh, Hungary particularly, and then the beginnings of these um, dem big demonstrations in East Germany. That was their story. That wasn't the Soviet story. Um, I do remember in September when the Hungarians uh, opened the border to Austria so East Germans could go out, as you were explaining, and, and, and make their way to West Germany. I remember asking at a press conference in Moscow, so what happened to the Brezhnev Doctrine? You know, the idea that you would defend the members of and the borders of every Warsaw Pact country. And I was very struck that the response was, well, you know, that, that doesn't hold anymore. It's their business. And I remember thinking, ooh, where's this leading? Um, so that set the stage for Gorbachev's um, visit. We had already heard um, just days before he'd been on a visit to Finland, the end of October, I went with him. Um, and uh, his the foreign ministry spokesman came out with this phrase, the Sinatra Doctrine. I don't know if anybody remembers that. It was, um, he was reporting to us the, um, the meetings he'd had with the Finnish authorities, and he said um, that um, Gorbachev had said, events, I, I went back and looked at my notebooks, so I found the quote. Mm -hmm. Events are now taking place that are the concern of the countries and peoples of the region, and we have no moral or political right to interfere. We now have the Frank Sinatra doctrine, he has a song, I did it my way, so every country decides on its own which road to take. So that was Gennady Gerasimov, the foreign ministry spokesman. And he came out with that in um, Finland. And then days later, we made our way to Berlin with Gorbachev 
for the celebrations. I don't think we had any real idea at the time how bad his relations were with Honecker and the East German communists. It was, it was hard in those days to get that close. Um, but um, I do remember two things. One was Gorbachev standing on the podium next to Honecker and Honecker saying, we shall not allow anything to destabilize socialism and there'll be another 40 years of the, of the DDR, of the GDR. Um, and um, Gorbachev, the next day, suddenly breaking away from the official program and going walkabout, which is something that he did, had done from the very beginning, from 1984 in Moscow. And he, he, he was prone to doing this. And of course, he knew that the cameras would follow him and the people. And my memory is that um, he went into a, a park. It seemed to me it was like a park, followed by all of us with our cameras and our tape recorders and our notebooks. Uh, and of course, many of them West German television cameras. And um, he stopped some poor unfortunate East German, who I don't think spoke any Russian. And he wagged his finger and talked emphatically at them in Russian. <laughs> and what he was saying was, um, you know, you've got to act, it's up to you, you've got to decide. Um, um, uh, you, you, if you don't take the moment now, you know, it'll be dangerous and things like that. And uh, what I do remember is that he then walked off with his minders and all these people, most of them German, who had um, been there, had no idea what he'd said. <laughs> and um, so they, we, they worked out that a few of us had come from Moscow, myself included. And I remember one of them sat me down on a park bench with the West German camera and played back what had been said. And I did a quick translation to let them know. And of course, he'd done this deliberately to send, so there was one private message to Honecker but he wanted a public message to the East German people. So he had come to the park to be filmed by West Germany so that they'd go back to West Germany and beam it back in to people like yourselves. So that, that was very, it was clever. Interesting how he used the, yeah, and it certainly, the media. It certainly had an effect because the demonstrations uh, after he left really started to kick off and, uh, and become much, much, much bigger. Uh, Timothy, you, you have been you had been traveling Eastern Europe uh, for several years already and, 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 and of course then witnessed those events in Warsaw, Hungary, um, Berlin. Um, what is your take on this or how you do remember this, the, 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 the developments? I mean, did you have any sense of what was going to happen? Next. <laughs> Only Bergson has a great Phrase. He talks about the illusions of retrospective determinism, the almost irresistible temptation to think that what actually happened somehow had to happen. I went to live in Berlin in 1978. I was traveling constantly in Eastern Europe from then on, particularly getting to know the dissidents, Solidarność, Havel, Carter 77, friends in Hungary, and we had no idea what was going to happen next, from one day to the next. And one of the most difficult things for historians and scholars to recover is a sense of what people didn't know at the time. And what you have to know is that for most people living behind the Iron Curtain, that the Berlin Wall and the division of Europe was almost like a fact of physical geography. It was like the Alps. It seemed almost inconceivable that it could come down. We couldn't believe, and there were good reasons 
for not believing it because there was a nuclear-armed superpower behind this. So every day brought new incredulity. I remember, for example, drinking with leaders of Solidarność on the evening of the historic 4th of June 1989 election in Poland, which we now know was actually the end of communism in Poland, in effect. We had no idea what the result was going to be. We didn't know that Solidarity would sweep the board. Then I went to East Berlin in July 1989. I remember an evening, Jens, I'm not sure you were there, but it was with Gerd Popper and his friends, yeah. the small group of East German dissidents, and they said, well, it may happen in Poland, it may happen in Hungary, but it couldn't possibly happen here. Unthinkable, out of the question that the Berlin Wall should come down. And so it went on day by day. That said, that said, I think it's really important to say that 1989 did not begin in 1989. The one, when I got to Prague in mid-November, just at the beginning of the Velvet Revolution, I found Václav Havel, and I said to him, Václav, in Poland it took 10 days, in Hungary it took 10 months, in uh, East Germany it took 10 weeks, maybe in Czechoslovakia it'll take 10 days. And he thought this was so wonderful, he summoned over a camera and had me repeat this to camera. But that was roughly right. So one has to remember that in Poland it was a 10-year struggle arguably starting with the Pope's visit to Poland in 1979. Then, of course, Solidarność, the suppression of Solidarność. Let me remind you, in May 1988, there was another occupation strike in the Lenin shipyard in Gdańsk. And I remember I managed to get into the shipyard. A shipyard worker helped me to climb over the wall and under sort of rusting hulls and through the debris of the shipyard and into the headquarters. And there was Lech Wałęsa, flat out on the floor in his carpet slippers, asleep. And Tadeusz Mazowiecki and the other advisors. And when Wałęsa woke up, he said to Mazowiecki, we've got to negotiate. You're going to do the negotiations. He said, you're the intellectual. And then I'll say it in Soviet. Panie Tadeuszu, pan jest od negocjacji. Pan jest od mądroszy. You're the man for negotiations. You're the man for wisdom. Why? Because he knew they were going to be defeated this time. But actually, that defeat was the beginning of a process. And I think the key to understanding what happened in 1989 is that by the end of 1988, we could see the Soviet empire was an empire in decay. I actually wrote a piece in the New York Review, September 1988, the empire in decay. What happens in 89 is that decay becomes dissolution. And for me, a couple of things from East Central Europe are crucial in this. And I just want to recall these two things. One is, you had this great popular movement from below. You had Solidarność, which at the beginning of 89 was still very weak. It was the genius of the Solidarity advisors, and particularly of a great man who should be rem remembered today, the historian Bronisław Geremek, mm -hmm. the key political brains of Solidarity, who saw that you had to make this a combination of reform and revolution, what I called at the time revolution, and therefore you had to have a negotiated revolution, and therefore they invented the round table. 
And for me, the round table, even more than the crowds in the streets, is the symbol of 1989, because that was the key to turning decay into dissolution, to have a negotiated revolution. And now, of course, 30 years on, the government in Poland is denouncing the round table negotiations and what happened on the 4th June as Interior Minister General Kiszczak meeting with his agents. That's what one right-wing intellectual called it. Actually, this was the genius of 1989. The example followed in Hungary, which then opens the door for the developments in East Germany, where, of course, it was very close to another Tiananmen. But again, wisdom prevailed, and they managed to negotiate. So, so that's one really important thing, the genius of the advisors, learning the lesson of 68, of 56, of 80, 81, also the lesson of Tiananmen, which was extremely helpful in East Central Europe. The last thing I would say is one thing which we saw at the time, but which is incredibly difficult for historians to recover, is the creativity of the crowd, the in spontaneity of the crowd. Prague, November 1989, Wences Square, 300,000 people. Who was the first person who thought of taking out their keys from their pocket and doing that? Doesn't mean, sound like much now, but when you have 300,000 people shaking their keys, it's the most amazing sound. We will never know who was the unknown genius who thought of taking their keys out of their pocket and shaking them like that. Or East Germany, you mentioned it already, October, November. I was in Leipzig and Dresden. Who was it who, instead of saying, wir sind das Volk, started chanting, wir sind ein Volk? We will never know who those individuals were, but they were the, the, the people who actually made history. Uh, which very neatly brings me to the, to the question of the people and the, the role of civil society um, in the revolutions of 1989. Uh, I mean, Jens, you um, stood, of course, on a platform that were not advocating reunification. Um, 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 so how did you experience, actually, what, what, first of all, what role do you, you know, in reflection, see of uh, played um, ordinary people in the... Uh, 1989 revolutions, and how did you experience this shift from, you know, calls for uh, reform and quite radical reform to, you know, let's just get rid of it, you know, uh, unification. That's the, you know, the the the, the divisions that uh, dissidents had of a reformed East really lost out, you know, had no chance against, you know, visions of, you know, of, of visions of an imagined West that, that, that re clearly people in East Germany really embraced very quickly. Sure. I saw in the eyes of my, of the people around me, and, well, I saw open eyes and a spirit of, well, of uh, intensity and creativity that I have never seen in crowds, in German crowds afterwards. And never before, because I'm too young for this. And at the same time, people were, were calm. They were not, not wild, 
not revolutionary in, in spirit. They were calm. You could discuss with everybody, even on the streets, which is very rare in Germany, where people tend to close uh, up uh, themselves. And in the churches, who gave, uh, which gave shelter, shelter to, uh, to discussions. You had calm discussions with a very wide scope of different opinions. And people were, were thinking about reforms, about what should be changed, uh, who, should be, uh, who should retreat, uh, who should, what should be done next. They discussed it. <laughs> Uh, in, in reality, around them, what, what, what their problems were at the, at the place. Uh, well, and this was the, was the inspiring uh, mood of the population. And under these auspices, uh, myself at least, uh, I must say it, uh, we tried to help to be within this movement, to think about this. And there were certain conclusions um, that we should, should drive it too far. Keine Gewalt, no, no uh, force, was what the activists of the, of the dissident movement had around their arms. Keine Gewalt on the, on the Leipzig. Uh, at the Leipzig uh, uh, assemblies, for instance. Well, and uh, if you think about keine Gewalt, then of course also not to overstring the momentum. We had, all of us, we had in mind 53, the revolution, the crush revolution in, in Berlin, in, in East Germany, we had 56, the war that Khrushchev brought on, on Budapest, very bloody. We had the experience, we had seen the experience of 68 in Prague. We saw how difficult it was with the, uh, with the Solidarność movement uh, in, in Poland. So, at least I can say one of my main well, warnings or convictions was don't, don't do it too quickly. And in particular, don't bring up the German question at that moment. After all, we had half a million of Russian soldiers uh, in the forests. Uh, we had this tumbling Politburo. We knew very well uh, myself included from, from uh, friends and from the newspapers in Moscow that Gorbachev was sitting on a catapult chair. Nina Andreeva, Igor Ligachev, a very open, a very open threat that he, that the seat would be released, would be triggered as it did one and a half year afterwards. So 
it was absolutely necessary to avoid any bloodshed, any bloody revolution there, and to look at reforms within our country to, to tidy it up after, after all, and not to, well, to, to, to release that spring that had in earlier times uh, released the uh, reaction of the tanks uh, in, in Russia. And this was, uh, I think, more or less uh, the same feeling and the same thinking uh, at the time in the other Eastern European countries and among Russian uh, friends, at least, I can say, but we have also uh, official uh, statements in, in Moscow. And this was successful. After all, uh, it, is all, it has always been said that the, uh, that the New Forum movement had no political program. You did not need a political program at the time. You just had to point out that the most important thing is the reestablishment of the liberties of the American and French Revolution 200 and uh, odd uh, years uh, ago. Free movement, free travel, free opinion, free coalition, uh, free activity in economic terms, abolition of this, of this judiciary, of this uh, 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 violent judiciary that, that the, the paragraphs in the, uh, in the, in the uh, book uh, that, uh, that was established and by which we were threatened at the time. Be calm and try to bring this through. And then at a certain point it began with, well, we are one people, we sind ein Volk. In the beginning, I must add, as far as I have been told, it meant uh, we are one people addressed to the policemen that stood in front of the demonstrators. And only later on <laughs> it turned its sense. So then, and then, the one thing, and I expect it from those who have, uh, who have thought about this and have, have been present and have uh, observed all this, still the, the, the tiger was wounded. There was a system in decay or even in dissolution, but very strong with all these atomic bombs, with all these uh, uh, big armies and all these others. Why did they negotiate so feebly, so, so pliably uh, in, from, from December to March, giving up the whole Yalta achievement, the whole Helsinki uh, convention, giving it up without uh, trying to stop it somehow, which they could have done by force. And I'm this is the question I have. Uh, uh, what do you think? Why, why <laughs> was this possible? So, so if, do we mean by they, Gorbachev and the Nein, Soviet I mean, I mean Yes, I mean, I mean the powers that be Because I think there's a two parts to the answer, and, and maybe Bridget could give the Soviet part, but let me give the Central European part, because I think they're complementary. 
I would say that the Central Europeans in 1989 were beneficiaries of their own illusions in 1968. In 1968, they had believed you could make socialism with a human face. Gorbachev, it seems to me, had some of those illusions still, mm -hmm. and therefore gave them an inch, opened possibilities, mm -hmm. said we won't use force, and then they took a mile. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, they East Central Europeans, and then the question becomes, why did those in power in these countries uh, give up? Mm -hmm. without a fight. And that becomes complicated because it differs from place to place. But certainly in Poland and Hungary, a large part of the answer is because they had lost fundamental belief in their own legitimacy, in their own credibility, in their own right to rule. And many of those on the regime side, actually like Alexander Krasniewski, former Polish president, then a relatively young member of the Communist Party. He had absolutely ceased to believe in the authority of the Polish Communist Party, the legitimacy. And so there were people on that side who were ready to have a negotiation in which, by the way, they exchanged political power for economic privilege. So there was something in it for them. So I think, I think it's a set of rational choices by some people, certainly in Poland and Hungary, in the leadership, and then, of course, East Germany and Czechoslovakia comes later, plus being given the green light, or at least the amber light, from, from Moscow. And then it's to bridge it for, for the Soviet side. Mm. I, 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 was, um, I covered the Polish elections in June 89, before I went to Moscow, and I remember interviewing a member of the Central Committee who said, no, 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 we have to reform. You know, the Communist Party is a mess in Poland, this is a kick up the backside, basically. And it's good for us to have these elections. Of course, he didn't know that they were going to be totally slaughtered. Yeah, you know. But I, th I think that um, in Moscow, um, there were a lot of people in the Soviet Central Committee, the reformers, people like Andrei Karachov, who's written a lot about this, um, who felt the same thing, that the, the, the system was rotten. Um, they didn't want to give up on the system, but they thought it should be reformable by being held to more account by the people. And Gorbachev wanted to use the people. Um, I remember um, being at a conference that he organized um, 20 years after the start of Perestroika, so 2005. And um, there was a big debate among those present about whether he should have gone the Chinese route and just done economic reform and not unleashed political reform. And at a certain point, people arguing this one way or another in a quite theoretical way, he just banged his fist on the table and said, in a country like Russia, you couldn't do it the Chinese way. I had to let people speak. Russians needed to be released from their silence. But he also said that he needed them. He needed them against his enemies in the Politburo. So um, it's a bit like what I was describing he was doing in Berlin. He wanted to use this, this energy from below. Um, but, of course, it ran away with him. But he was always doing that. I, I, it was very instructive, um, having a look through my old notebooks, at what was said at press conferences, but also the questions we asked. And there was this sense, I think, um, that perhaps we had as political correspondents in Moscow, but also our interlocutors, who we were talking to in, in, in the government, that they, they could, they thought, have a process of negotiation. I mean, a lot of the questions were about... I mean, in... in um, June 89, Gorbachev went to West Germany 
and said, well, the wall doesn't have to be there forever. Of course, it's up to these Germans what they do. And sort of that sort of opened the question. And our, but, but I noticed that our at the press conferences, what we were asking was not, do you think the wall will come down? No. But you're quite right. Mm. It felt like it was, it, was, it was there. It was very difficult to see how it could be dismantled. But what we were talking about was, leaping over that, do you, could you imagine Germany being reunited if, for example, it were to stay neutral? So that presupposed what we were all thinking was that this would go towards some sort of negotiated settlement. And in a way, what happened in Poland in June was the model. The round table was the model, that somehow you'd be able to bring these two sides together. In East Germany, it wasn't working because the Communist Party was too resistant, but in Hungary, it seemed to be going okay. And that's what they were looking at. And that, of course, is what Gorbachev hoped he could do in the Soviet Union too, except it didn't work out that way. So um, I think the anticipation was that it was going to... Certainly, I think we felt sitting in Moscow, that Eastern Europe was going to go free. It was going to slowly slip away, but that it, would be, it wouldn't be a shock. It wouldn't be a drama. It wouldn't be just suddenly one night people pouring over the wall and chipping away at it. That was not what anybody thought. But I think people did think by the summer of 89, that especially after what had happened in Poland, that it was going to, it was, it was going to slip away. One other thing I just wanted to say on the subject of Czechoslovakia and Havel. I went to interview him in 1987 for a program for the anniversary of 68. Um, and um, uh, we, we went to his flat, and um, shortly afterwards, Eugene Deansbier appeared in his boiler suit, because he was working as a stoker, looking rather dirty. And I remember we asked them both, do you think in your lifetime that you could have another sort of revolution of the 1968 type. And they both said, no, 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 not in our lifetime. And then what, less than three years later, one was president and one was foreign minister. So mm -hmm. you just, incidentally, because it's, we're talking about the same subject really, Moscow, 2011, I remember interviewing Mikhail Kasyanov, then at that point, a very prominent member of the opposition, um, just before the uh, December elections of 2011, and I said, do you think there'll be trouble on the street? How do you think this regime, you know, how might you in any way, as the opposition, put pressure on the Putin regime? And he said, we'll do it through oil prices, but we won't be able to do anything with the people. They're too supine, nothing will happen. A week later, massive protests on the streets of Moscow. The opposition leaders in Moscow had had no idea. So I guess this is a pattern that repeats again and again. Nobody knew. Yeah. I mean, this raises the question of the reformability of the system as such, really. And it was frequently already mentioned, as 1968 has come up quite a bit. Um, and and Finmati, of course, said uh, 1989 didn't begin in 1989. And I think 1968 and 1989 are, are, are clearly connected. Um, um, because when we look at 1968, uh, you know, as a result of crushing um, the, the Prague Spring, um, you know, people who had embraced reform communism, um, we see a large number of, um, you know, party members, young intellectuals, really losing faith that, you know, reform could come from the inside, and they turn away. Um, we see dissidents turning that, you know, start out, of course, on the communist side, but becoming anti-communist. Um, and 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 I think we really see, gradually. Um, People even, you know, in power, amongst uh, the people in power, losing faith in the um, superiority, of course, of the system, also with the economic crisis. And even in the GDR, you mentioned Poland and Czechoslovakia, but in the GDR, 
um, we see a growing number of you know party members. Um, you know when they go on a they are, when they are allowed to travel on business to, to West Germany in 1987, more than 400 didn't come back. In 1988, it was more than 800. You know, more than 1,000, I think, 300 party members applied for exit visas in 1988. So, you know, you can see the you know, people who are in the party losing faith in, in its ability probably to, 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 um, uh, to rule. So I think this is part of 1989. Um, but um, whereas we see the worst, the majority of people, of course, having turned into apathetic conformists, um, you know, expecting rising living standards that the systems had trouble uh, to deliver. So my question, I guess, is, you know, was it reformable? Um, um, clearly, the, you know, implosion uh, wasn't inevitable. We can see that, you know, uh, if we look at, uh, at China and North Korea, you know, collapse of communism wasn't inevitable. Of course, whether we want to uh, define these regimes as communist is another question. But uh, um, so were there missed opportunities for reform? Were these systems reformable at all? Big questions. I mean, look, what did Gorbachev wanted? What did he want? He wanted to turn it into a social democratic system um, on a sort of Scandi model. Yeah. And he wanted a common European security system where Warsaw Pact and NATO would no longer exist. And in the end, he wanted, in the Soviet <coughs> Union anyway, a looser confederation with a weaker centre. But, um, of course, the problem was, after decades of misrule and repression, you know, the vision was negotiation and dialogue. But there's no basis of trust. And you just have to look at the whole story of NATO. Um, what did the Warsaw Pact countries do the moment they had the chance? They dissolved it and then said, can they join NATO to protect them against Russia? Common European home was not a vision that they wanted. And um, similarly, inside the Soviet Union, um, people didn't want something which was a reformed communist party. They wanted to do away with it. Um, Yeltsin was the one who banned it, but it, it was not popular by, we're moving forward now, but by 91, one of the ways that the system was being abandoned was simply because people didn't turn up. I remember after the attempted coup in um, August 91, going along to a session of the all-union Soviet parliament in the Kremlin, and there were very few delegates there. Almost nobody had come from republics. I remember meeting the Belgian ambassador. I've met him since, and we always remember it. And we looked at each other and we said, I wonder if this will be the last meeting of this parliament. And it pretty well was because people were just not turning up. So um, could, could this system have been reformed when there was this distaste with it, this distrust? I mean, clearly in Eastern Europe, they felt that. Um, certainly, it turned out in the Soviet Union, they did too at that moment, even if some people say they're nostalgic now. So I think it's important to distinguish between the question, was it reformable and could these states have been saved and preserved? My answer to the first question is no. My answer to the second question is clearly yes. So to, to what you said, Matthias, obviously there was a, 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 a tremendously widespread sense of the decay of the system. Um, not only among ordinary East Germans. You will remember the East German joke, what is a string quartet? answer an East German orchestra after a tour to the West. <laughs> um, 
but right in the heart of the system. So, so one of the things I did after German unification was to read my own Stasi file and then go back and interview the people who'd informed on me and the Stasi officers. And the, 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 the head man, the head of counter-espionage, General Kratsch, told me the following story, that uh, in about 1985, he'd come back to his office, and the Minister for State Security, Erich Mielke, um, rang up and said, wo warst du? Where were you? And he said, oh, I was at a meeting, and we were talking about the economic prospects. And Mielke said, I'll say it in German first, haben die dir gesagt, wir sind bankrott? Nein, das haben die dir nicht gesagt. Aber ich sage dir das. I'll tell you we're bankrupt. Now, Stephen Kotkin has written, I think, one of his weakest books, arguing that that's why East Germany collapsed, because it's bankrupt. But this is a complete non sequitur. If the Soviet leadership had been determined, a nuclear-armed superpower had been determined with half a million troops in East Germany, had been determined to maintain this system coot kakut and do another Tiananmen in the center of Europe, of course they could have done it. There could still be a, a Berlin Wall today in 2019. And so the peculiar genius of the moment was this combination of this extraordinary man and Soviet leadership Bridget has been describing and the wisdom, the wisdom of the leadership and of the people, and of the people on the streets of East Central Europe to make that negotiated transition. And one last point. In that process, Tiananmen was unbelievably helpful. Because, of course, you have the memory of 53, 56, 68, Stan Wojeny in Poland. But I will never forget, on the day of the 4th of June, 1989, semi-free election in Poland, coming back to the newspaper offices of Gazeta Wyborcza, which was in a nursery, in a creche, and seeing on a tiny black and white television screen the first pictures from the massacre just off Tiananmen Square, and students being carried off on makeshift stretchers, which were exactly like the black and white pictures from the Baltic coast of Poland in 1970 and 71, when the workers were killed. And Tiananmen, everybody talked about Tiananmen. You'll remember it for the whole second half of 1989. And so everybody knew we can't push it too far. We have to have a self-limiting revolution. So in that sense, I think Tiananmen, though a curse for China, was actually a boon for Eastern Europe. I think you should remember, um, we're talking about 68, Gorbachev's personal story with regard to 68. When he came as a farm boy, clever boy, award-winning boy from southern Russia to Moscow to study law at M Moscow University. His best friend was Denek Mlinac, who was a Czech who'd come from Prague. Um, then Stalin died. These boys were distraught. Um, Zdenek was the one who kind of told him what to think. Um, at the end of their studies, he went back to build his career in the Czech Communist Party. Gorbachev went back to southern Russia to build his career in the Soviet Communist Party, and they both moved up the system. In 1967, by now Zdenek Mlinac is one of the architects of the Prague Spring. He makes a visit to southern Russia to go and see Gorbachev and Raisa, and they spend a couple of days together. So what are they talking about? 
they're talking about what's happening in Czechoslovakia, obviously. Uh, Raisa, his wife, um, was a sociologist, a pretty rare thing in the Soviet Union at the time. She was very interested in the whole idea of the human face of a possible socialism. Um, then the um, events of August 68 happen. Gorbachev votes with the party to denounce um, the counter-revolutionaries in Prague and approve the invasion. Well, what else is he going to do? He's a senior party official in, in southern Russia. They're all watching him. Presumably, they bugged his conversations with Ninoch. So he supports that. A year later, he's sent with a delegation of communists to Prague to talk to their Czechoslovak brothers after this terrible event has happened and they've been saved by their Warsaw, Warsaw Pact brethren from this counter-revolutionary attempt to seize power. And he's very interesting in um, his later memoirs, and I've done an interview with him about this. Of course, you know, you have to worry. Some, when people live a long time, sometimes they rewrite their history. But it's pretty detailed, what he says. So I, I, I'm inclined to believe it. And he said, when they arrived there, he, he seemed to be doing some sort of double think, because he seemed to think in one half of his brain that there really had been a counter-revolutionary attempt, and that it was a good thing they'd gone in and stopped it. And in the other half of his brain, he was thinking something different. But he said they were taken to factories to talk to local workers, and all the workers turned their backs on this Soviet delegation. And he said, I felt sick to my stomach. And I realized that what we'd done had been a terrible thing. And um, he does now talk about how it affected his attitude to perestroika, that he felt they had to go slowly. That's why he was always so cautious, too cautious, and it ran away with him. But he also now talks about how that affected what he did in 89. So that's to answer your question, why didn't they stop it? So, I mean, that's, it's not the whole reason, but it's an interesting part of his biography that I think, you know, sometimes it is these little biographical details that can have a huge impact. But just one word on that, because I think there's a slight difference between your assessment and mine. When you said what Gorby wanted was sort of social democracy, Swedish style, I think what he wanted was something closer to democratic socialism or socialism with a human well, face. Yeah. Right? And so, and I think there's no, a... No, I, I don't think we disagree. I think he started off where you are and then moved towards right. and I, social democracy. But, that, but there's, a, of course, a crucial qualitative difference between the two. Yeah. And so Eastern Europe went significantly further and faster than he had imagined or, I think, hoped. Um, no, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. He thought that the, the good communists would win and they'd stay in power because the people wanted them back. Exactly, and then we'd have a wonderful control process. Jens, uh, you said the Neues Forum, you know, you didn't, have, you didn't need a political program, but clearly uh, you had to have some vision of where you wanted to head. So you, you clearly put your fate into the reformability of the system. Um, so at that time, what was this vision? I mean, was it socialism with a human face? Socialism was no longer a very good word. In, in the proclamation of New Forum, uh, we dis before we discussed it, uh, whether we have to, to say that we wish some, some, some socialism of this better face and, and so on. And uh, the majority decided don't, don't use this word as it uh, is in, in this regard by now. Socialism is, is Cuba, is, uh, is Phnom Penh, is Russia, is uh, East Germany, is Poland, everywhere is some sort of socialism. Don't go into this illusionary concept. 
And therefore, we, uh, this was a reproach, of course, of uh, very many people who otherwise would have been signed uh, the declaration. People closer to the idea of socialism, of, an, uh, uh, of, well, uh, of what it entailed um, ideologically or, or in, 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 in the space of ideas. But at that time, uh, the word, to mention this word was not no good. And uh, so perhaps what we thought about would have been some sort of, well, of de-ideologized continuation of reformed, of a reformed state. Ideology, uh, negative ideology was an important factor because after all, those who in the 80s suffered most from the system in its existence were the young were young people in school at school for instance with the with the uh, militarist education that was installed and that went and they didn't wish to and uh, they wished to travel and they they went to the eastern countries uh, uh, by hijack hijacking uh, cars and uh, so again, they suffered most, and what was to be abolished was this education at schools, for instance, very important factor about uh, uh, not much is being uh, told nowadays, uh, for ordinary people to say something must change for the better here simply. This is nonsense, this is, this is uh, unacceptable young population tends to leave the country. My own children left the country or, or had, it in, had it as a plan when they, when they were somewhat older. The, the idea, to, the, the prospect to live further in, in East Germany was to sit there as an, as an old society uh, where we would not have even seen our grandchildren uh, one day. So these things were, were very important, not just the idea that there was a collapse of society or of, of uh, econom economy that played a role, of course, as well. But, but I think there was a, the general distress was, the, was with, the, with the with the way that the whole life looked gray and was presented as, as a, gray, uh, um, a gray future uh, to you. Uh, this was what contributed very much. Not only the banana, that the, uh, uh, the banana played a role, of course, but the general distress about living like in a, in a Bad, uh, bad cut suit uh, all the all the time. This was what people made so so negative. So, and this had increased very much during the uh, decade afterwards, uh, after '68. This feeling that is no, it's no good life that we live. Question is whether life got better afterwards. <laughs> That's for another discussion. <laughs> Um, on the banana, I hope someone is writing a thesis on the role of the banana in East European history. The children of the nomenclatura 
in Poland in the 1950s and 60s were called Bananowcy. <laughs> Bananowcy, because they were the only ones who had bananas. So the banana plays an important role in Eastern Europe. On the question of what did people want, what was their sort of vision of, of a good society, I, like I'm sure Bridget, I spent a lot of time just asking people that question. And the answer most frequently heard was, we just want to be a normal country. Again and again, people would say, we want to be a normal country. And then if they were intellectuals, like Jens, they would talk, as you did, about the American and French revolutions and liberal democracy and human rights. But if you sort of dug deeper and said, what do you really mean by a normal country? Essentially, the answer was West Germany. Right? That was a normal country. Which they that saw was a, on television. Which they saw on television, and in the case of Poles and others, had seen in person in very large numbers under Edvard Gierek. I mean, they'd traveled. And so I, I think that's, that's really important. That's why Habermas called it die Nachholende Revolution, the revolution of catching up, because there was this absolutely concrete, real image of what a normal country looks like, which was West Germany. So 89 is also, I mean, never mind Ronald Reagan, it is a great achievement of West Germany because West Germany became what Konrad Adenauer had, had, had imagined it could be. He talked about magnet Europa, the magnet. And I, I think it's, you know, and in, in, it's interesting if you compare it with subsequent revolutions or attempts at velvet revolutions elsewhere. I mean, in the Arab Spring, for example, um, or, or, or indeed more recently, it, you know, you don't have this clear, simple idea of we want to be a normal country and we know what a normal country looks like and it's just next door and we can join it. So that's an interesting point because if you think about what's different between the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, um, the normal country was not next door. That's it was over there in Western Europe. Right. Very few people... Um, knew about it. Um, Soviet propaganda painted it as rapacious capitalists and Dickensian London, and you know it was a scary place. Mm. Which is why Gorbachev's idea of a social democracy was a more palatable. The idea of a socialism, a sort of communism light, was for people. For, was I think he thought, and I think quite a lot of people did think that that was appealing. Whereas in Eastern Europe, that wouldn't have been enough. Unless you were Estonian. Well, no, exactly. Which is I was an going important to, point. No, no right. I was going to come on to that. Um, of course, when the lib was lifted and people began to think more about it and they had more access to more information, then their aspirations changed. And that's when, you know, it, it was no longer enough to talk about a social, uh, a kind of a reformed communism to start with, perestroika to begin with, just restructuring, we all know that, uh, and then go on to the social democratic model. No, you know, by the time, you know, Yeltsin took over, they wanted shock therapy and the whole nine yards. But I think that it's... it's I'm, I'm, I remember... I was just thinking when you were talking about Poland, and when I was a, an undergraduate and spent a year in Voronezh, OK, in the depths of the provinces of the Soviet Union, um, uh, there was one girl there. She had a friend who'd been to Poland, and that was a very rare thing mm. for a young person to go to Poland. And she, used, she and her friends used to ask her, tell us again that story about how there are three types of ice cream. Yeah, yeah. Not just vanilla, yeah, yeah. but chocolate and strawberry yeah, too. Yeah. I didn't have the heart yeah. to tell them about yeah. Baskin-Robbins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, so it, 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 you yeah. know, the, it, this, is, this is sort of, 
this is very relevant to where Gorbachev started from and what the aspirations were. But as you rightly say, in the Baltics, they thought differently. And of course, the reaction to the fall of the Berlin Wall immediately, already the popular fronts were up and running Absolutely. in um, the three Baltic states. Already they were beginning to draw up lists. I remember once going to Estonia, talking to the popular front. They said, oh, we're very busy. We're drawing up lists for our elections. I said, what are you talking about? We've just had Soviet elections. Oh, no, these will be our elections for people who lived here who had families who lived here before 1940. At the time, it seemed a crazy idea. This was 89. Um, you know, we, but they, they, they had their eye on the prize and they knew where they were going and Eastern Europe just made clear to them that's what they should have. Because they'd been annexed during the war, they weren't really part of... They understood what a normal country should be like. And that was a red line for Gorbachev. You know, but already in January 1990, he was going to Estonia, wagging his finger at people and saying, you don't want to leave us, it's not in your economic interest... You know, you need to stay, and well, that's another story. But, mm -hmm. but it was also true, of course, um, in Western Ukraine. Absolutely. Um, I remember Absolutely. going to a, a, a rally in Western Ukraine in, um, before the fall of the Berlin Wall at the end of August, early September in 89. And up till then, um, the lid was firmly on. Shabitska kept the lid on because Moscow knew Ukraine was a problem because it, it was a split country and half of it had had a different pre-war history. And um, they had decided to lift the lid, presumably on instructions from the Politburo, and there was a rally, an unsanctioned rally, and the police set dogs on the crowd. And the reaction to this, you know, the, the bloodshed, was people were so outraged, the answer came from Moscow, the next rally, there was to be no bloodshed. But we correspondents all went out because we thought there might be a, a, a real bloodbath. There wasn't. And people just came out. And I remember one man falling to his knees and saying, all my life I've been a loyal communist. I now want to repent in front of my fellow Ukrainians that I was wrong. It was a sort of moment of, uh, an extraordinary moment. It was like, um, you know, a, a sort of revelation to everybody. And that was the moment in Western Ukraine, the lid lifted, and it wasn't the same again. But I, I was just one other thing I was thinking of when you were talking about Tiananmen Square and the effect this had on people in Eastern Europe to say, let's not push it too far, we don't want a bloodbath. Of course it had an effect in Moscow on Gorbachev and co, because they didn't want to fall out. They were already having a difficult time, as I said, with George H. Bush, who was a bit sceptical of them. They did not want to fall out with the Americans over arms control. They did not want, for other reasons, to have a bloodbath. There's another factor. In a place like the Soviet Union, it was always the inward factors which played, I think, louder to um, the gallery in Moscow. You know, what was happening in Tiananmen Square or what might be happening in Eastern Europe is a long way away. But what had just happened um, in 1989 in the Soviet Union was um, th the incident in April 1989 in Georgia, in Tbilisi, when police set about a demonstration with sharpened spades and killed quite a lot of people. And that had created uproar in Georgia, but more widely. And I think that, therefore, when it came to the whole question of using violence, Gorbachev, because of Prague 68, maybe didn't want to. But more recently, there were other reasons and arguments to use for, for those who were more hardline in the Politburo why this might be a bad idea. So, yeah. Um, finally, I mean, we, we are pressed for times, and the drinks are waiting. Um, Looking back now, 30 years after um, 
not quite yet, 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but the dominant narrative at the time uh, was really that these revolutions were the victory of liberal democracy over authoritarianism. Uh, these were liberal revolutions. Um, you know, does this narrative still hold, given you know, recent developments in Central and Eastern Europe, um, or do we need to re-evaluate our, our, our assessment of 1989? So I'm actually going to write a postscript to this book, The Magic Lantern, We the People. So I'm thinking about this. And obviously, it's a very different feeling from the 10th or 20th anniversary, both of which were celebratory, actually particularly the 20th in a way, because mm -hmm. Estonia was now a member of NATO and the EU. It was a normal country, more normal than Britain, many would say. <laughs> um, maybe they'll help us get back into the EU. Um, uh, so obviously it's a very different feel, and we have to ask the question, what went wrong? But I don't think it follows from that that these somehow weren't liberal revolutions and were profoundly flawed. Apart from anything else, 30 years is a very long time. You know, <laughs> liberal democracy has had a pretty good run for its money, as it were, and it's a great mistake to believe that it's only East European countries or Central European countries which have nationalist populism. So the old West European and Western stereotypes about Eastern Europe, which Larry Wolf describes brilliantly in his book, Inventing Eastern Europe, have returned with a vengeance. To hear Macron speaking, it's all Asiatic barbarism. You know, Asia begins at the Polish frontier. Um, actually, it seems to me, many of the features of peace in Poland, uh, or indeed Orban, although with some qualification there, of, of nationalist populism in Eastern Europe, uh, have as much in common with Le Pen or Nigel Farage or um, other populisms, or AfD, which is partly an East Central European phenomenon, of course, in East Germany, uh, than they do with the specific causes in, in Eastern Europe. So I don't think, you know, I don't think we should regard this as another example of the peculiarity of, of Eastern Europe. But, but just one other thought on that. Well, two other things. Firstly, what I do think is that, as so often in the history of Eastern Europe, the social question is a key to understanding what has happened. For example, at the start of the Polish transition, you had the right hand of the transition, which was Leszek Balcerowicz, shock therapy, free market economics, and the left hand of the transition, which was Jacek Kuron, the social side, a passion for social justice, a real concern for the poor and weak. The right hand went on punching away for the next 30 years. The left hand pretty much disappeared. There was no successor to Jacek Kuron, the social question, the fate of those who were losing out from the transition, was badly neglected. And then along comes peace, uh, law and justice party, and picks up those social discontents and uh, connects it to a Catholic nationalist ideology. So I do think that's a specific feature of what happened in East Central Europe. Um, last comment, just an anecdote. Some of you will remember the name of Arpad Gunz. Who remembers Arpad Gunz? 
writer, translator, imprisoned after 56, the first president of independent Hungary post-1989, a good friend of mine. Uh, people used to refer to him as the, the Hungarian Havel. And he said to me once, why don't they call Havel the Czech Goetz? <laughs> Poor man. They went on calling him the Hungarian Havel, but a lovely man, but with characteristic Hungarian pessimism. He said to me, you know, I'm glad I've lived to the, see the end of the last disaster, but I hope I die before the beginning of the next one. <laughs> and lucky man, he did. Jens, do you want to? I can subscribe to this. <laughs> uh, of course, of course, we are in different waters by now. And if you sail uh, over the ocean and come from calm, uh, from uh, Pacific uh, Ocean into in, into a more wild uh, uh, ocean, then of course things change, and and you have to live with the new uh, the new situation. After all, we had this Fukuyama's uh, saying, what was understood as uh, the end of history. I don't uh, know whether he really meant it. But now, of course, he is a very good example, uh, quoting him for illusions. I, I agree, uh, Timothy, the, the illusions lasted at least 25 years, and that is a big thing, a uh, big thing in Europe and in the world, that, that we had a calm, a calm time to live, and we must collect what has been achieved during this time and what has been neglected, social question, for instance. In East Germany, I wouldn't think that the social question in, in material sense mm. uh, is the reason for the reappearance of all those who were living, or nearly living, nearly all of those who were living at that time are still again, are still here. And the opinions, for instance, that come out now in the, uh, in, in the face of the immigration wave that is going on, could have been, could have been occurred also 10 or 20 years ago, uh, uh, given the circumstances. So we will have to live and to cope with this major problem that continues to haunt, well, people, at least those people who belong to this stratum of being socially neglected uh, in East Germany. It's, it's never, never certain what will come out. That was very wise, Timothy. We don't really know what, <laughs> what has to occur now and what the determinism that is going on uh, is not visible. And so hope and not giving up and committing yourself to something that you feel should be done in the in this new environment that we live in, and in particular, of course, children and grandchildren will have to live. Let me mention the climate question only finally. <laughs>
Um, I've, I've thought a lot about why the Soviet Union, after the Soviet Union's collapsed, things went the way they did. And I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of you too would have worked on this. And there are very good reasons why Gorbachev should have, uh, Putin should have emerged after the revolution without shots, as Gorbachev called it, in the Soviet Union. And a lot of those reasons are to do with the Soviet Union or Russia. So the very long time that communism was there from 1917, um, the size of the country, um, the distance from Europe, the fact that it's 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 not it's it's not only it's not just part of Europe; it stretches all the way to the Pacific, um, and the shock of how it collapsed, which we haven't talked about at all, but um, was another drama of a different type. In '91, the attempted coup. And then in the wake of that, the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union as the republics fled the center. And in the end, there was the, the second coup organized by Yeltsin and his advisors with Kravchuk and Shushkevich, which is known as the Bielovirsky Treaty or coup, which led to the collapse. So that was a huge um, shock for a lot of Russian people, including people who had wanted to see radical change. And um, we all know the stories. We, we all know how distressing the 90s were. So then Putin emerges. So the interesting thing about that in this debate is that those are Russian reasons. There's a, you know, if, you, if you're talking about the rise of authoritarianism or the, the weakening of democracy, liberal democracy in these countries, that's totally understandable in the Russian context. And personally, I'm a long-term optimist, and I think they just have to live through it and will hopefully come out the other end. But it's different from Eastern Europe, which is your territory. So that's much more troubling in a way that you should have Orban or... Um, uh, the current government in Poland, though, you know, if they're no longer there, or, you know, Trump, let's face it, in, in Washington. Those are much, much more troubling questions, in a way, than why Putin is there in Russia. Um, but that's, that's your domain, that's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let's finish on a positive note. That, uh, um, so, and, uh, of course, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union we will be able to discuss in much length in 2021 when we go to Glasgow. And maybe, Bridget, you could uh, come back. Um, so, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, so let's thank our uh, three speakers for a really stimulating uh, roundtable. And you're all welcome now to join us for the Bessie Strings Reception, which is sponsored by our uh, partner, Routledge, Taylor & Francis, and it's over in the CWB building. So let's thank our speakers. That was Witnessing the Collapse of Communism in Central and Eastern Europe and the Disintegration of the Soviet Union, moderated by Matthias Neumann with Timothy Garten-Ash, Bridget Kendall, and Jans Reich. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. 
You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Secrets.